God, you are powerful. You are stronger. God, we don't even know what that means. We get to see glimpses of you and we get to experience parts of you that are just amazing and create awe in in our being and we just go, wow. And we just see a tiny bit of you. God, we look forward to when we can see you face to face with new bodies that won't explode at your glory. I thank you that we can sing out to you as your children before your throne in your presence. Thank you for your spirit. God, just be with us this time. Open our hearts, soften our hearts, till that fallow ground in our in our souls that uh, good good seeds can be planted and grow into good fruit. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I feel. Would you go back to? I can't remember the first or the second song. I don't remember the one by Saint Francis wrote the words. And that's the second one. I don't remember which order they were in. Yeah, that one. Um, that's fine. Uh, you know, there are nine verses to that song. Uh, you're familiar with, but you're familiar with the last verse, maybe, uh, but not in that tune that we sing. Maybe you know the doxology. Grew up in a church, maybe that did that. Um, you know the doxology, right, Bo? Yes. Sir. You can you can start us on that. We're going to sing that together this morning. That's the last verse of this song, actually. So don't think about it in that tune, but sing it in the sing it in the tune you know. Bo, can you start us? Yeah, do you know? Yep. No, no. Praise God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. What's interesting is we there's a lot of stuff that we get that, that are parts of bigger, longer Hymns. A lot of hymns we sing uh, today are really just shortened parts of hymns that had 9, 10, 15 verses. They kind of just kept writing and kept writing. Um, the other thing I like about what we did this morning is that Paul mentioned that he sang, thanks, sings something different than what Brandon does. That's good for us. I mean, it really is. Uh, the idea is the words. The idea is that we are praising God and and sometimes it's good for us to get out of our preferences and say, there's nothing really wrong with doing it differently than the way I do it. Because uh, different is not always wrong. Different is just different. And so it's good for us to be rattled a little bit and go, I, I can't quite get that tune. Uh, maybe it'll help us think about the words a little more. Maybe it'll help us think about why we're here. Is it here to do things the way I want to be done? Or are we here to do things the way God wants them to be done? It is good to be with you this morning. It's good to uh, to fellowship with you. We are continuing now in 
Uh, Genesis chapter uh, 40, end of 47, beginning of 48. Linda's got a bulletin, uh, and she would be happy to hand you one. There's an outline in there. Sarah will have an opportunity, but every one of us has an opportunity to leave a legacy. Everybody in here, from the youngest to the oldest, every single day will make an impression on somebody. In a, in a sense, leaving a legacy, people will remember something, will be affected by what you do, what you say, how you say it, every single day. We often think of leaving a legacy as that thing that happens when we're old and we're getting ready to die and we, we pass on something to someone else. But it happens all the time. And, and you know that because people have impacted your life for good or for evil. They've left a legacy with you. They may still be alive, but they've left part of them with you. And we'll do that every day. You will and I will. And so the question is, what kind of legacy are you going to leave? It's one thing to talk about positive and negative, but those are open to interpretation. What may be positive to some person may be negative to someone else. The real question is, are you going to leave a legacy of faith? Are you going to leave a legacy of faith? The problem is, it's, it's not easy at times. Our circumstances sometimes affect us and, and because of our sin, because of our pride, because of our doubts. We don't leave a legacy of faith. In, in fact, we make decisions based on fear. We make decisions based on doubt. We make decisions based on just our own wisdom as we evaluate circumstances. And so instead we leave a different kind of legacy, a legacy of, I'm capable of doing this by myself. Or we leave a legacy of selfishness. Or a legacy of fear. And it may be interesting to you that we're going to look this morning at Jacob on how to leave a legacy of faith, because if you've paid attention at all, he sometimes hasn't done a very good job. When we come to the end of his life, what we see is, is that he leaves a legacy of, of faith. He makes decisions, despite his present circumstances, which are not good, as he blesses his children about the future based on God's promises in the past. He leaves a legacy of faith because he makes decisions about the future, despite his present circumstances, based on God's promises in the past. We read these words in, in Genesis beginning in 47 verse 28. Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time for Israel to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Please, if I have found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt. For when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. He said, Swear to me. So he swore to him. Then Israel bowed in worship at the head of his bed. Now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. When it was told to Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel collected his strength and sat up in bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, 
God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous and I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Now your two sons were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. But your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers and their inheritance. Now, as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, these are my sons whom God has given me here. So he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them close to him and he kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your children as well. Then Joseph took them from his knee and bowed with his face to the ground. Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right and brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. He blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my father Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. And may my name live on in them, and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him. And he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also will become a people and he will be, a great, and he will be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. He blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel, will by you, Israel, will pronounce blessing, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then God said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for your word. Father, as we look at it, I pray that you would use it to strengthen our hearts, to strengthen our faith. We might be your people, faithful and loving. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So what were his present circumstances that were a hindrance to him? First of all, he was in the wrong place. He was in Egypt. And there's no indication that either he or, or his family for quite some time are leaving. In fact, if he remembers the story that was passed down from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob... They're going to be there for 400 years. And so when he chooses to bless his sons, his present circumstances would seem to say that's a rather foolish thing to do. To bless them with an inheritance that is out of your reach and out of your son's reach and out of your grandson's reach. Jacob, your circumstances are such that not only are you in the wrong place, but your family has settled down. They've put down roots. They've become comfortable. They've acquired land. They've become wealthy. And, and their brother, Joseph, is all but king. 
And I imagine, in addition to just his circumstances, which seem a little formidable, if Jacob just kind of sits and thinks for a while over the past, he sees that his actions, his sin has wrecked havoc on his family. If you go back and read through Genesis, you see that his pride and his doubts kind of dictate what he has done for most of his life. You and I aren't in a much different place than that. Sometimes we're overwhelmed by circumstances. We certainly, like Jacob, sin and cause trouble for those around us. We wrestle with pride and doubt. And maybe just as much as Jacob and his family, we live in this wonderful place we call the United States of America. We live in this wonderful place we call Cherokee County. And it's easy to become comfortable. It's easy to become content. Not realizing that this really is not our home. This is not where we will be permanently. And so it's easy to allow circumstances to kind of soften us. And not allow us to think of the future. The legacy of faith we want to leave that points the people around us not to what's around us, but ultimately to, to God, to our eternal destiny. Is that where we're pointing people? It's where Jacob was pointing his family. I know, I know where we are, but God promised to give my descendants the land of Canaan. I know we're in Egypt. I know it looks like we're going to be here for a long time. I know you're happy. I know you're comfortable. I know you're well cared for. But this isn't where we're going to be. I know I've made mistakes. I know I've been an idiot at times. But God promised. And despite all those circumstances, Joseph then makes some decisions. He... he does some actions that show that he's trusting God, his promises from the past, for a future that looks much different than what the present is. The first thing he does is he makes Joseph swear to take his body back when he dies and put him in the, the family burial plot. Now, if, if Joseph had real doubts, then this would be the time to break with that and start a new burial plot in land that he owned in Egypt. Sorry, Jacob. If he had real doubts, this would be the time to begin anew. Right? Maybe not a big deal. Maybe, you know, maybe he already had the headstone picked out. I don't know. Maybe he really wanted to be next to his father or his grandfather. Maybe it's a small thing, but nonetheless, he chooses. And he makes his son swear, take me back because that's our home, not this one. But again, that's just a, a small thing. He does a much bigger thing. It involves Joseph's two sons. He tells Joseph, in effect, these two boys of yours are really mine. That seems strange, but here's what's going on. A father would often give his firstborn son a double blessing. A double inheritance. What it would look like if, if I've got so much land, so much cattle, so much sheep. Let's say I've got four sons. I would divide that into five pieces and the oldest son would get two parts, everybody else would get one. would get a double blessing. Well, it's not like Jacob doesn't have anything. He's got cattle and sheep. From what we read last two weeks ago, he's actually got land. 
He doesn't give that away. What's interesting is He gives away something He doesn't have yet. When He says, your two sons are mine, they're going to be called in the names of your brothers, what He's saying is, when y'all eventually go back, Ephraim and Manasseh are each going to get the same amount of land as Simeon and Judah and all the rest of the brothers. Now, I don't know how Joseph feels at this point in time. He's getting sort of ripped off. Like, well, but wait, where's my double inheritance? And, and if we think about it, right, they should know they're going to be there for 400 years. I mean, Ephraim and Manasseh really aren't getting anything, but it's their families. He's looking to the future and not giving away a current inheritance. He's giving away something he doesn't even own yet. By faith, he's making a promise. Ephraim and Manasseh are going to get the same amount of land, by the way, which we don't even have yet, as all the other brothers. We're going to divide it up evenly. Then the other question you may ask is, but wait, but Joseph's not the firstborn. Why does he get it? Well, again, in Jacob's mind, Joseph is the firstborn, right? Rachel was supposed to be the wife. This Leah was a, was a trick, right? If we remember from back in the beginning of Genesis. And so all along in Jacob's mind, Joseph has been the firstborn. He gets the firstborn rights. He's giving away something he doesn't even have. Despite his present circumstances, he trusts God. He trusts the promises that God has made to him that one day his descendants will go back. Down at the very end, verse 21, when he says, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. See, we, we, we're disadvantaged in English because those we just have the word you for singular and plural. But there is now a guy who's put out a... If you have uh, an app on one of your cell phones or an iPad that uses uh, Bible.org or uses uh, Blue Letter Bible, or there's several of them, there's a plug-in now you can get that will put it in a Texas version and all those plural U's in your Bible will, will show up as y'alls. Why apostrophe A-L-L. That's just come out this week. So you may want to get that. That way you know is this singular or plural. By Jacob's talking plural when you, when the nation, when all the clans come back, God's going to give you the land. He's not talking to Joseph. He's talking to Joseph's descendants. The question is, how does he do that? How does Jacob, the one who's lied and been doubtful and deceived, how does he, how does he make this promise knowing what all we know? I don't mean legally. I mean, not that. How does he trust God enough? Because a blessing was a serious thing in Israel. This isn't something that fathers took lightly. This isn't something they just did... Just, okay, here's a ceremony to do it, blah, blah, blah. This was a serious thing. A father passed on a blessing to his sons. And for him to give away something he didn't have, it's like saying it's done. It's a done deal. Joseph, this is going to happen. How does he do that? I think there's, there's three things that Joseph mentions in the blessing to Ephraim and Manasseh that will help us. So we're going to focus the rest of our time on verses 15 and 16. 
beginning of 15, he says, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. Don't isolate your faith from your spiritual heritage. Don't ever isolate your faith from your spiritual heritage. Jacob had a wonderful spiritual heritage. Grandfather Abraham, a father Isaac. He could look back at them in those stories that were passed down. And he could repeat those. The miracles that God did in their lives. And he could pass those on to his kids who would pass those on to their kids. And some of you have that heritage in your own family. Some of you have godly parents or godly grandparents or godly uncles and aunts who have invested in you. Do you spend time thinking about how God was faithful in their life? And are you passing those stories down to your kids, to other people? Are you doing that? You should be. If you've got a spiritual heritage, you should be sharing that and passing it down and allowing God's faithfulness in their lives to help you make faithful decisions today. Because God has been consistent over time. But there are some of you out there I know who look at your, your relatives and you go, but I don't have that. I'm sort of a first generation Christian. What do I do? Well, actually, there are several things that you can do. Number one, we read at the beginning, because of what Christ did on the cross, you legitimately can now claim Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and Hezekiah and Jeremiah and Habakkuk and Paul and Peter and James as your heritage. Because of what Christ did on the cross, you are now one with those people. You're related to those people. They are your spiritual heritage. And so in the same way as, as some of you who may have uh, godly parents and you think about how God was faithful in their lives, do you spend time in this book thinking about how God was faithful in the lives of people? What's neat about this book is, is that all the stories get passed down, even when those people were jerks. And what we see come out is this faithful God in the midst of these people who were unfaithful some of the time. And yet, they made decisions and walked by faith at times. And we look at that and we go, that's amazing. Those guys were idiots. And look, God did something miraculous in their life. Could He possibly maybe do something miraculous in my life as well, even when I'm an idiot? Do you allow the stories in this book to strengthen your faith? To help you to grow? To help you make decisions in the midst of your circumstances, in the midst of your own sin, in the midst of your doubt, in the midst of your pride? But it's not just people in this book. God has given us people throughout the centuries who have walked by faith. Do we spend time going back and, and looking at biographies and stories of missionaries and faithful people who have walked with God and allow them to help us grow in faith. People like, and they're all over the world. People like Athanasius from North Africa, Martin Luther from Germany, Jim Elliot in South America. People all over this planet who have walked faithfully with God. Do you, do you take their stories? Because, because of what Christ did on the cross, they're part of your family. Do you allow Uncle Luther and his stories to be passed down to your kids? 
Look what this great man of faith did. This week I, I emailed you a, a letter from the Smiths. I don't know if you read that or not. Uh, but in that they included a story of one of your brothers in Christ. A dear brother. And, and in the midst of his circumstances, which weren't good, how he walked by faith. I want to read that to you, whether you've read it or not. Uh, he begins by quoting 2 Corinthians 1.4. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. And then the story. A bad sickness has been traveling its way around our area here and claimed the lives of several young children and babies. That sickness has finally reached our village and we've, and we've seen God protect many. However, a few weeks ago, Asa and his family lost their young boy. The Lord comforted Asa and his family in spite of the many accusations that floated around saying that he was a negligent parent. Many people did not even come to the funeral and one brother even cut down several of his banana trees in one of his sweet potato gardens. We guided the church through this and the people publicly apologized to him and promised to reimburse his lost food. Well, sadly, this weekend another baby died. This time it was the baby of a man that has kept his distance from the church. Esther, his wife, and Eli, one of his sons, I went down yesterday to mourn with the family and bring some food, the universal sorry gift. What Esther saw brought her to tears. There was Asa and his family sitting there crying with the family. They offered many words of encouragement and support. They lived out the above verse to this distant man. And here's what this man said. I'm amazed at the show of grace. I was one of the people who was mad at Asa and blamed him for the death of his child. I did not visit him when his child died, nor did I go to the funeral. And in spite of that now, Asa sits here with me and carries my burden. This is amazing to me. It is indeed a joy to see people responding to God's word in spite of obstacles and persecution. God does comfort us and uses his church to do so. Asa rose above his pain and became a vehicle of God's grace. Pray that this man will be drawn to the truth as a result of this. His name is Moet. Comforted, Gary and Esther Smith. We don't have to just look here for stories of people who, who trust God's promises. You see, Asa could have been bitter. He could have been angry. He could have been mad. He could have wanted to say, you know what? Justice is mine. But he trusted the promise of God that God would said, ultimately, I will deal out proper justice at the right time. You, Asa, go and love this man. And that's a remarkable testimony of someone who, despite his circumstances, the loss of a child, ill treatment, hatred from his neighbors, trusted in God's promises and went and loved. And the, and the question is, will we do that? Will we take the legacy that's all around us, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and will we allow that to strengthen our faith? Allow that to help us make wise decisions? But it wasn't just the legacy from his heritage. Jacob also knew in the second half of verse 15, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. See, we don't have to look around at everybody else. We can look at our own lives. We can look at our own sin, our own doubt, our own pride our own fear, 
And we look around and go, and yet God has still been faithful to me. God has still walked me from where I was to where I am, despite who I am. And because of His faithfulness, because of His continued pursuit of me, today, today, I can make a decision of faith. And I can show those around me, yeah, I've been an idiot, yeah, I've been a jerk, but today, I'm going to walk by faith. That's the good news of grace. That's what the gospel yells at us, shouts at us. Yes, you, my people, God says, are jerks a lot of the time. And I've sent my son so that even if that's true five minutes ago, now, right now, you can choose to walk by faith. You can choose to make decisions based on the promises that I've made over and over. You can choose to love an enemy because justice is mine. You can choose to be generous because I've said I'll provide all that you will need. God is our shepherd. We have a, a life of faith that we need to pass on to our kids. And just like the stories in the Bible, we need to pass on the good and the bad to our kids. Because what we don't want them to see is us being all that's necessary. What we want them to see is God being all that's necessary despite us. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the, the glory may be of God and not of ourselves. Do we, do we pass on everything, including the fact that we're cracked pots, so that people see the goodness and the glory of God. When we finally do something right, do we give Him the glory? Do we want it for ourselves? Don't forget that God is your shepherd. Don't isolate your faith from your spiritual heritage. And finally, don't forget that your faith is dependent upon your redemption. In verse 16, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Jacob knows he's a scoundrel. He knows. But he also knows God has redeemed him from that and allowed him to be in the place that he is right now to pass on a blessing to his kids. See, it doesn't matter how many great stories of faith you have to pass down if you leave out the most important story. That God took you, a child of wrath, and made you His beloved son or daughter, if you leave that story out, the other ones don't matter. Do the people around you know your story? Do your kids know your story? We had a, a pastor in Texas who said on multiple occasions, if I go to your funeral, if you die and, and I'm sitting around your house with your kids, and I say, tell me your dad or your mom's story, and they can't do it, I'm going to walk up to your casket. I'm going to thump your dead head. How do you not pass that on? Do the people around you know that God redeemed you from the corrupt person you were to one who is now a beloved child of God? Is your redemption the greatest miracle that you know? 
See, we oftentimes think about, well, I don't have as good a testimony as that person, because we think of... But I think the reason we, we doubt the significance of our testimony is we don't understand the depth of our sin or the cost of our redemption. You are no worse, you were no worse or no better than anybody else that you can imagine. Just someday sit down and think about the thoughts that go through your mind if you doubt that. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. See, we don't really know what goes on. We don't really know ultimately how bad people were. We look at actions, but we can't judge all the thoughts that we dwell on and hold on to and harbor. What bitterness, what unforgiveness, what lust, what hate. Is your redemption the greatest miracle that you know? It should be. And if it's not, would you, would you think, would you dwell on what your sin cost our Savior? And then would you allow the fact that if God could save you, if God could save even you, what can He not do? If He could take me a child of wrath, evil and selfish and hateful, if He could take me and save me, what can He not do from here on in? What can He not provide for me that I would need? What can He not fix that I can mess up? What can He not do? Will we allow our redemption to, to help us to walk by faith today? When we look back and say, God, you, you took me from there to here. And will we allow that to help us make decisions today based on faith? Based on God's promises to us. So that we make decisions that, that can change somebody else's future. As God works through us and in us. Will you leave a legacy of faith? If you're not sure, then don't forget you have a spiritual heritage to draw from. Don't forget that God has been your shepherd continually. And don't forget He redeemed you from who you were to who you are. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for today. Thank You for Your love and Your grace and Your mercy and Your goodness. God, thank You that You have put people in our lives who have walked by faith that we can see their example. People like Moses to people like Asa. God, thank You that You have shepherded us and walked us through so many times when we have not been faithful. And God, we praise You for our redemption. For the gift of Your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave Himself for us. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing again?